in chapters 4 and 5. So we're going to read chapter 4 in a minute or two um, once we get through the introduction. So the title of this, though, is What Makes a Person Worthy? Right, we just had our election, so we all kind of picked people to vote for whoever we thought was worthy based on whatever our criteria is or are, right? And, and we do it kind of every day, yeah. right? We do kind of pick our favorites or things we think we should give our time to every day. And so we just had a change of, change of leadership in the nation, so that's very important to any kingdom or government, so we all know who's in charge or at least who's, who's responsible, for what's going on. And so I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but the Stone of Schoon, have you guys ever heard of that? It's also called the Stone of Destiny. And there should be a picture of it. I have, I have a picture or two. So that's what the Stone of Schoon is. And it's, that's a replica, because um, we'll get into a little bit of the story. But that is where the kings of Scotland were crowned. So whenever they had a big coronation or a new king, they would sit on this stone and they would... You know, put the crown on it, put the crown on the, on the king and say, okay, you're, you're it. And this was the seat of the generations of the kings of Scotland, the kings of Delreda, before them. So that's kind of the people before the Scots, right? That's where they were crowned. And it was in Scotland until 1296 at Schoon Abbey, where the coronation of these kings took place until, and then John Balliol. Uh, so if you guys have seen the movie Braveheart, the Balliol clan is one of the people who kind of goes against William Wallace at one point. Um, so in his line, he became one of the last kings. But Edward I of England in 1296 stripped Scotland of all emblems of nationhood. And he took the stone of destiny, right? So he took this throne from them and moved it to England into the Westminster Abbey. And that's the Westminster Abbey is where the coronation happens for the, Eng the kings and king queens of England. And that's the throne in Westminster Abbey. And you see that little bottom part, that inset, they stuck the stone of destiny into the throne, right? So obviously the UK, the United Kingdom is part of Brit British, or, you know, Britain, England, or Britain, Britain, Scotland, and Ireland, right? That makes up the United Kingdom. And so that's why they were taking it and solidifying it. So for the next 700 years, it was to be housed in a specially built coronation chair, which is that. So that way, when you became the king of England, you technically also became the king of Scotland. Or the Queen of Scotland as well. Right? So that's how this throne, for us, thrones are important. Now, we don't have kings, but again, we, what, we witnessed the exchange of power. And we don't have a throne. We have the Oval Office. That's kind of the same thing. It's a little bit of the throne room, in a sense, of what we understand as Americans that goes on you know, in our country. And so we see this. And so these, these, these ceremonies to install these kings and queens, they're visible. They're huge events, just like our, our, our inauguration. It's a huge event. And so whether it's a ceremonial or, or an actual position, people know who the king and queen are. They know who the rulers are. We know who the president is. And so they change, though, because kings and queens do not live forever. And if you go back through you know, English history, other, other countries, you know, people want to fight for power, for control of the country, the nation, whatever it is. And so they may overthrow somebody. You know, and we're talking a lot of times these are family members, brothers and sisters, that are fighting each other to become the king or queen. And so nobody, no one human is going to be in charge forever. Even if you have a, a line of maybe me and my son and my, his, his son, 
his daughter, you know, all the way down. It may be a dynasty. There may be a line that goes on, but it's not forever. And so empires and rulers come and go. And we see this in the Old Testament, right? We see even in the book of Daniel, two empires within roughly 100 years or so, the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. Right? If you, when you read the book of Daniel, we went through it, right? There's two empires there, at least. There's also the Assyrians that happened before that, right? So the Bible has, and then it moves into the Greek and Roman empires when we get into the first century. In, in even the book of Revelation here, that the Roman Empire was in charge. And yet even those, they were foretold. But as we see in the Old Testament, God is the king maker. He is the one who sets up people here on earth to be in charge for his reasons and purposes Whatever they are. Right? We know that he used the Assyrians as a tool to punish and correct the Israelites, and the Judaites, until they kind of came around. And he did the same thing with the Babylonians to, to punish them for 70 years as well. But chapters 4 and 5 here, they shift from earth because 1 through 3, Jesus was talking to the churches. He was talking to John. He was on earth. He was somewhere listening to everything, seeing everything goes on. Then we get into this, this is the break into the, the real, what people understand or know of Revelation, where it's all the fantastical creatures, and I have some pictures to help us kind of view the images a little bit, at least from artists' perspectives, right? Because this is where it gets weird, right? We start talking about these beasts with eyes and wings and whatever else, and all these things over the next 19 or so chapters, it gets into what people think of the revelation. It's not this picture of heaven that goes from earth to heaven, but it's not this picture of, of fields or happiness and angels just kind of floating by on playing harps, right? And we see it's kind of what we think, the little fat baby angels, you know, like, yay, it's so nice. I need some toilet paper now, right? It's, 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 this is the majesty of God ruling over his kingdom. Right? This is him... Because everything, almost everything that takes place in the, the rest of the book happens from this place, the throne room, his office, and he projects it out to the rest of his creation. And so John takes us right to the throne room. He is taken there to see this fantastical scene of the Almighty God and how he governs and rules his kingdom. Because he is the Almighty King. He is the High King. So we're going to go ahead and read... Revelation chapter 4, we'll read all 11 verses, because that's, that gives us the whole setup. Now, again, everything takes place in chapter 4 and 5. It's all in the same place. And we'll go through chapter 5 as we go through it, but I want to read chapter 4 specifically to, so we can get this vivid imagery that's really in this. And it says, so John tells us, after this I looked, and he's talking about chapter 3 and 4, when he talks about or chapters 2 and 3 with the churches. So after he was told everything about the churches, that's what this is. After this I looked. And there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. 
Something like the sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. So he's talking about the floor here. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, 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 Lord, the God, Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give, give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. It's a whole lot. And again, I have a picture or two here coming up. But here's the main point. Is that Jesus was the only being worthy of becoming the sacrifice for God's people. And so that's what we're going to get to in chapter 5. That's what really what we see take place here to open the scrolls. But Jesus was the only being of all these people hanging around heaven that could, we would think probably from our standpoint could do the job. Jesus was the only one who could become the sacrifice for God's people, his own people, which is us, the church. Because right? we talked about that last week. The word means we belong. We belong to him. And so I have three points here. So God is worthy of our praise. The lamb is a worthy sacrifice, and, and the last point is, is the application piece of it, really. is it's, The triune God is worthy of our worship. That's on the back of your app, of your, uh, your bulletin, if you don't have one. We can grab them there. But. And so for the first point, God is worthy of our praise, I want us to focus in on verses eight and 11, chapter 4, verses 8 and 11. And I have it on the bulletin already there. But we see that the start of this, that John is in the spirit as he goes through this door, to stand in the throne room of heaven, and he gazes at God. Right? He sees this, and it's unclear. This is one of those phrases that we don't really understand what it means as far as when he says he's in the Spirit. So he may have had an out-of-body of experience, or he was in a trance. Uh, that, that, though without question, one commentator says that what follows has much in common with Paul's experience recorded by the apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 1 through 6, because John and Paul both had similar experiences where they were able to go up off of the earth, essentially, into heaven or some kind of other realm to look and see what's going on. Right? And so they had similar experiences. And Paul confessed that he, in, in Corinthians, he confessed that he was unable to delineate his exact state either in or out of the body. And so John's situation seemed similar. So even they didn't either know or understand exactly what was going on, right? But they were able to record all this stuff, so they, we know these are the real, this is the real deal. These are, these are his words, but they're still a little bit, like, not 100% with whatever happened. But, or perhaps it's a little bit like traveling to Narnia through the wardrobe door into the forest, right? You, if you remember, the, if you've seen the movie, they open the door, they go through, there's all kinds of coats, and all of a sudden you keep walking a little further, and all of a sudden you're in a snow-covered forest. Like you just go through the back of the closet, the wardrobe, and boom, you're in Narnia, right? So maybe it was something like that because he said he came through a door, right? So we're unsure exactly what it is, but those are kind of some options. 
that happens, right? And you're able to explore these lands for years and then return to our world, right? If you're there for, for years and years and years, did you come back and only if like five minutes had passed, right? And so, so that's how we kind of see what, how John was able to see everything that was happening and then come back to our, his present day at the time and kind of go on about the rest of his life. But at any rate, John is brought to this throne room, and the first person he sees is God. He looks right at him, and I think I have a picture. It should be, should be one of the pictures here. So there you go. So if John is looking, this is maybe John's perspective. This is what we see. And his eyes are drawn towards this being in the middle of the room on this throne. And he sees this one seated here with the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. So he's very shiny, very bright, very big, most likely. And there's this rainbow around. That's what that red ring is behind the, the white light there in the middle. He sees these things going on. He sees the thrones and the, and the angels of the beings. Right? And he doesn't describe them. Look at the words he uses to describe. He doesn't say he's a tall man with dark hair, a beard, round eyes, and a large purple robe. He doesn't give those like normal descriptions if you were given some kind of lineup or a mugging, you know, hey, this guy, he had brown hair, this, that, and the other. He said, no, he was just this shining being. Now, there's probably really no words to describe what it, who he is and what he looks like, really. And the floor that it sits on is like a crystal. It's pure crystal or it seems like a sea of glass. And if you, you know, drive down the 101 when it's real nice and calm, you can see that, right? The ocean just looks... Like glass, right? It's just calm and it's pretty, it's, you know, it's a blue color if it's the sun's out, everything else. It, that's kind of what it looks like we see. And around the throne, there are 24 creatures, 24 other beings, they're elders, four creatures that are hovering around the throne. They're just kind of being there singing, right? Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. So, in case you didn't know who that person was in the throne, those beings, those angels, give you the clue by singing the song. And so those imagery that John gives us, those four living creatures, that description can also be seen in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10. And they sing holy, 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 and also Isaiah 6 is the same thing. We get the same rough picture or viewpoint from Isaiah the prophet when he goes into the throne room when he's getting the call to prophecy. To be the prophet. Right? So John just didn't make this up. This is all consistent with what we understand as the Old Testament. And so when they say holy, 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 they repeat this three times. And so holiness is a central attribute to God. Right? It is what makes God, God. He's holy. He's perfect. And so when you say it three times on one level, it is really just emphasizing. Because in Hebrew, just like we do in our English language a lot of times, if you double say the word... It's putting an emphasis on it. He's really holy. He's holy, holy. So holy, holy, holy. He's extra double special holy. Right? If you kind of put it in our terms, we can understand. But also what seems to be consistent with what John has been preaching, essentially, is that this is also representing the triune God, right? The Trinity. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. And holy is the Spirit. And so this is followed by the emphasis of what they say on the unity of the Godhead. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So when you roll them all up, when you're talking about God as one, you say the Lord God of the Almighty, right? So it's a little bit different language, 
that we can use to differentiate between God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father, versus God all in one, all three in one, right? <clears throat> and so the eternity is also expressed here that he is the one who was, who is, and is to come. So we have this, this eternality of God. He just didn't, he wasn't born, he wasn't just started somewhere, he just was. Right? He is. And when he talks, he tells, tells Moses, who are you? And Moses asks, who are you? He said, tell them I am. Right? And it's I am. I'm, I'm the one. And so he's making a point with this theology to stress the fact that Jesus is not a separate God than God. Right? They're not two completely separate entities as far as I worship God and Jesus and they're two different gods. They're the same God. Right? That's the thing where people get maybe irritated or, or misunderstand what the Trinity is like because they are distinct. They have distinct personalities. They have distinct functions. But it's all one God. He's all one. They're all one God. <clears throat> and so this is the distinction he's making, he's stressing, because the apostles' understanding of the Trinity or the triunity of the, of the Godhead is this clearly restated in the shouts of the angels, right? So they are understanding who God is. They lived him forever. They know. And so this theology, this Trinitarian theology, runs all the way through John's writings. So it would stand a reason he's going to extend it from his gospel into this letter as well because he's being told what to say. He's being told what to write down. And then verse 11, though, the elders begin their song. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and praise and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Right. So the elders of the church... The elders of the, sitting in the throne room, they understand this is kind of their part of the song. They know who God is, and they say, you are the one who created all things. And by your will, everything's in existence. Our lives are made possible because of God. Everything that we have, our jobs, the grass out here, the air we breathe, everything is made and kept in perfect harmony and balance because of God. Right? The earth, they say, if it's if it's kind of moved a fairly small amount for moving of the earth and how big it is, if you move the earth just a little ways left or right, it's too hot or too cold. Right? We are in the Goldilocks zone of our porridge being exactly right, just, just right for us to eat and be happy and live here and sustain life. Move it over too far, we scald our mouths. Too far the other way, you know, it's cold and yucky. Right? Nobody wants to eat cold oatmeal. But God is holy and he is worthy of our worship. He, his being is what sets him apart. He is different. He's holy. He's perfect. He's not fickle. We don't have to really guess what God makes God happy. He's very clear. We love him. That's what he wants. We need to believe in him and we need to love him. He's steadfast. He's not angered easily. He's very patient. You know, part of it, we're, in our men's Bible study, we had the question asked, of like, why don't you just fix it? Because we're talking about things when we get to heaven, things we want to ask God. And one of the, one of the questions was, well, God, why don't you just fix it? Like if the sin, the fall happened on Monday, why don't you just fix it on Tuesday? Why make us go through these thousands of years of problems, right? Well, part of it is because he is telling us, he is showing us that he is patient. And as things line up, he is waiting for us to worship him and figure it out. Right? And so that's, I think, part of it where he has all the time in the world and he can wait. And, but we are finite beings and we can't. So we want it fixed now. 
fix me now, save me now. You know, I want, I, I, I need to call J.G. Wentworth if I want my cash now. I want all these things now. I don't want to wait for it and have my payout slowly, right? I want it now. And so this, this worship of heaven is focused not on the created order, right? It's not focusing, they're not worshiping everything else around in the, in the world. They are focusing on the uncreated and eternal God. And this worship is spontaneous, right? It's, it's they continue to sing day and night. They never stop saying, it says in verse 8, and then in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, the 24 elders fall down and before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever. So they just sing and they sing and just kind of taking turns, however it works out. They just keep doing it. It's not scripted. It's not just because they feel obligated to do it, but they feel that he is worthy of their praise. Like I, he's worthy enough for me to spend my time praising him, right? It's the same thing we do when we come to church. God is worthy enough for us to get up in the morning and come here and learn about him. He, sing the songs, do all these things, right? That's, that's where we're at. And that's a good thing. But it's moving, it's exciting, and it's from their hearts that they do these things. It's not just a repetition or a chant. It's you get the idea that these people really truly mean what they're saying about God. But God is holy and we are not. So unless we get an invitation like John, how are we going to get into the into heaven, into the throne room to enjoy his presence. Well, that's where the lamb comes into play in chapter 5. And so John draws our attention from the person on the seat in the throne to what he is holding, right? So if you kind of, if you think of it like a movie, the camera zooms in to God's hand and we see what's, what he's holding. And so verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. Right. So we zoom in to God's hand and here he is. He's holding, he's holding a scroll like this and it's got seven seals on it. He can see that clearly enough. Right? And he sees it. And so he says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. Look in it. And so we're going to pause there for a minute. And so, so he says that. So it's not clear how long this goes on when they have this kind of search for somebody to open it. It could be minutes or it could be hours. You know, time is kind of irrelevant or warped here in, the, in, in, this, in this situation. But imagine, though, John is waiting as people are sent out to search for people or somebody, the one person who can do it, who can open the scroll, right? And, he's, and John says there, were nobody, there was nobody in heaven, there was nobody on the earth, or even under the earth. And when we refer to under the earth, that means the dead people. Anybody who was either dead or somehow in Hades or, where, or, 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 or Gehenna, that's where they went looking. Somebody, anywhere in the three levels, heaven, earth, or under the earth, who can open these scrolls? Who can do this job? But as time went on, the chances of finding someone grew slimmer and slimmer, it seems like, and there's no hope, and they have no idea who could open it and who could fulfill God's plan. And that brought John to tears. 
right? It says in verse four, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Right, because probably he understood what this was, but this he wept and wept probably has a meaning of he was crying and wailing. Right, he wasn't just had tears. Oh, I can't believe it. Like he was, why, why can't we find anyone? Right, that kind of emotion. Right, you see this going on because John understood that this scroll meant that God's plan, if it couldn't be opened, then it couldn't be read or fulfilled. And so now we have this. We think we have this standstill of God's plan and his sovereignty. Like, well, wait a minute. So all of a sudden, God's this powerful guy and he gets stuck because there's seven wax seals on a scroll and nobody can open it? Why can't God open it? <clears throat> right? Because then perhaps we would be stuck in limbo or we would, be, we would allow evil to reign in the world forever. And as we're living here on earth, that's what it seems like sometimes. Why do the bad people get to do all the cool things? Why do they, why do they get to exist? And why do all these problems happen? Why is there evil? What's God doing? Where is he at? Right? Those are people that people ask questions because they don't believe because they think that, well, if God's powerful enough, why can't he just fix it? And so he's looking for somebody waiting to come. But then the elder says, look, right? Or behold, behold. He's drawing John's attention to someone who is the lion from the, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll in its seven seals, right? The lion, the symbol of the, he's the king of beasts, he's wise, he's strong, he's courageous and intelligent. And so he's the, he sees this, he sees the lamb coming, and he's also the root of David, which comes from Isaiah 11. And it says, then a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, and Jesse was David's dad, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Right? And so that's a foretelling in Isaiah 11 of the Messiah. Right? So again, all of these things are foretold, and this is just the culmination of everything happening. And so the Messiah is at once the root from which David himself rises, and he is the offspring of David through his incarnation. Right? He's, he's the one who created David, and he's also in his incarnation body, incarnated body, he is a son of David. He is in the line of David, which gives him the access to the throne, just like with the kings, that if he was in Scotland, he would be sitting on that stone of Schoon to become the king. And as the offspring of David in his own incarnation, he was born in the Davidic line, so he is now here. And so he has triumphed. And this word, if you remember from the last couple of weeks with chapters 2 and 3, what did Jesus say to all the churches? For the one who conquers. And he uses the same word here for the churches as, the, as he does for himself. Once again, Nikeo, the word used for overcomes in these letters to the churches. So he's linking Jesus with the churches and how we are a part of his victory. And so the reference, though, to the Lamb is surely to the atonement and the resurrection because of those accomplishments, he has been deemed entirely able and worthy to loose the seven seals. And so that's Revelation 5, 6, or 5, yeah, 5, 6. <clears throat> so, right, it's been possibly about 60 years from when John saw Jesus last on earth. Right, for 80, 30-ish, 30, 31 or 33, all the way to 80, 95. So that's about 60 years or so. 
Maybe he didn't recognize the glorified Lord, but then we see that he is described as a lamb. He said, then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. But this young lamb, because it wasn't an adult lamb, it was actually a young lamb like this. It was, it was a baby lamb, baby, baby sheep. This lamb is alive. Even though it looked like he had been slaughtered, he bore the marks of, of, of being slaughtered. But he was alive. He was standing there living. It wasn't laying on the floor. Instead, he was standing there with these wounds as evidence that he was sacrificed. He had triumphed over death. Right? But the reader has to be struck by the strangeness of this lamb because then John goes on to describe it. He says, He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. So here we have this lamb that looks kind of normal, then all of a sudden it has horns and extra eyes, which would probably freak us out most of the time. Right? But why does it have this? Well, John tells us the seven eyes are specifically to reference the sending of the Spirit into all the earth. And then previously in chapter 1, the seven spirits are a reference to the Holy Spirit. So we see how they work together, the pieces of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity. So therefore, without surprise, there is a similar reference to all the churches and everything that goes on. Everything is fairly consistent through the book of the symbols and what they mean. And by the same token, the horns, which speak of power and authority, almost certainly relate to the Lamb, to the relate the lamb to the central figure sitting on the throne from whose hand he will shortly retrieve the scroll. And so still this is another Trinitarian illusion, right? This picture of John is saying, look, this is how the Holy Spirit, the the Trinity works together to bring about salvation, to bring about ruling the world and bring you into heaven. So then we see the lamb walks over and he picks up the scroll. Right, it says that he went... Verse 7, he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are prayers to the, of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. That is the gospel message, really, in the the very big picture. He was slaughtered because he he purchased us. He purchased people for God by his blood. If you are saved, and you've been saved, maybe you don't know, maybe you know people who don't know they're saved yet, but they have questions, you can say, look, this is what Jesus did for you. He bought you. So you would be saved from the wrath and you would also become a priest. Listen, because in verse 10, you were a priest to God and you were going to reign on the earth. And we get to that towards the back part of the back part of the book. But we will be reigning over the earth with Jesus. And so when we get to heaven, there's going to be jobs to do for us. Right? I'm sure running, running things is important. We will have jobs. We will be busy. And so this new song, they declare Christ is worthy to open these scrolls because of his redemptive work on the cross. Right? And this is the target group. This is the Great Commission because it's every tribe and language and people and nation. So there's going to be people from everywhere in heaven. It's not just all the Europeans, all the Africans, all the Americans, whatever. It's people from everywhere 
are going to be saved. Not every not every person, right? Not every not everybody gets saved, but there will be people from each of these places. However, you want to identify it as this tribe, language, people, or nation, and we become the church, right? Because we belong to God because we were purchased by His blood. And that's the important part that we are all in the same mission to do the same thing to get to bring the people who have, have been paid for and bought into the fold so they understand it and know it and realize it. And so again, this, this will take place with verses 13 and 14. So this, this is part of the application that the triune God is worthy of our worship. And we've seen the Father on the throne. We've seen the Son. And you know, he's the root of David in the line of Judah. Open the scroll. Oh, he's getting ready to open the scroll. And the Holy Spirit is the, in chapter 4, verses, or chapter four verse 5, it says that he, saw, he sees seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, right? So we see the Holy Spirit there, and we also see him with the, with the eyes as well on the Lamb. So we have the, tri, the Trinity in the throne room the whole time. And so the fire also makes sense from the standpoint of Acts 2, when on the day of Pentecost, the, the, the tongues of fire came down and, and kind of reversed the, the, the punishment at Babel. And the Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost right, with tongues like fire. So here, here's what we need to know, though. One, that God is the ruler. Right? God is the ruler. And this is the centrality of the throne in the room. Everything takes place around it, if you notice. It's not off in the corner. It's not wherever. Have you ever seen... Movies or things or you know, pictures, news with the throne. It's always placed like here. Like you know who the king or queen is sitting on that thing. They're not stuck off in the corner somewhere. They're right there. When you walk in, you see them because they want all eyes on me. Because I'm the king and you need to know. Right? So everything is focused around that. He is, this is the centrality of the entire book of Revelation takes place from this point. Everything that happens, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all because of God, because he's in control. He controls the nations. He controls the devil. He controls his people in the entire natural world. They're all subject to God's commands. And so the way John describes God is one of majesty, right? He has these fantastic creatures at his call. He has 24 elders of these sub-kings kind of looking at it, worshiping him. He is the high king and everyone else is just kind of in charge of their house or nation, right? So that's why with the Scottish, they had their, all their clans and different... Scotland was kind of broke up different pieces. So they had one guy who was in charge of all of them. You had the other people who were like the governors or whatever of their little sections. But they all reported and listened to the high king. And that's why it's important. That's what this, this is going on as well. Secondly, God keeps his covenant. God keeps his covenant. God is faithful and just. He cannot lie. He cannot break his word. Right? And so we know that we can trust him. So when he makes a decree, it's going to get done. And we know he will do it the best way that he sees fit. It doesn't mean we like it. It doesn't mean we think there's a better way. But he sees and knows more than we do. And that's what this complete rainbow illustrates. The rainbow as a circle is not just what we normally see from end to end. We're looking for the pot of gold at the, at the end. It's a whole continuous circle of a rainbow. And so this rainbow illustrates the judgment that will occur in the book, right? We know when we get to the end of it, the judgment will occur. 
eventually it will occur in the world for real. And it will be according to his true and righteous judgment. And since he created the world, he's the only one that's allowed to pass judgment on his world. It's kind of like if you let somebody else yell at your kids in Walmart, you probably wouldn't let that happen, right? Like, no, you don't get to do that. I'll yell at them at home, sure. But you don't get to yell. You don't have that authority to, take, to yell at my kid. It's the same thing. God is the only one who can pass judgment. And politicians rarely keep their promises for a myriad of reasons, but God does. And in God's justice, though, with his keeping of his mercy and his faithfulness, or his, his faithfulness and justice, there is mercy. And so the third point is that God is the Savior. Right, we see the second person of the Trinity. We see the work of salvation on the cross, and we witness the conquering of death and sin. Right, he is the victor. He is the winner. Jesus was the one who was worthy. God is the only one to satisfy God and take God's wrath. Because there still has to be justice. God said there would be death as punishment for, for, for sinning, as the wages of sin. But God took that punishment for himself and on himself. And he was, Jesus was the only one who was worthy to do the work. They, they looked everywhere. They couldn't find somebody. So Louis Burkhoff says that Jesus' sacrificial work on the earth calls for his service, also calls for his service in the heavenly sanctuary. Right? It wasn't just work down, done here, but it also had heavenly and eternal ramifications. And this is what we see John recounting because we don't know the timeline of when this happens. You know, obviously Jesus has already been the sacrifice or anything else, so, so we're not, you know, the timelines are, are, are confused or not clear of, of when everything happens here on earth and then everything's happening simultaneously in heaven or not. Right? So it's a little unclear. And so if you're a premillennialist who, who thinks that there's going to be a, a, or a or excuse me, a pre, pre-tribulation rapture, some people think that John being taken up is, is part of the rapture. So all this stuff is the rapture happens and everything else that happens in the book or are, are, are what he's kind of watching the earth fall apart and everything be reestablished. I don't think that because he's witnessing things that are kind of coming and going and, and have already happened and he's re, being caught up. And there's also things that are going to happen later. This is a rolling tape of certain things that have happened and then will happen. And we're going to get more into that as we go through. So if you haven't heard those terms, we will. But Jesus' atonement is because of the good pleasure of God. The Father sent the Son to act, and those actions are complete keeping of their will and nature. Each of those actions are also due equal parts glory and honor because he's the one that paid for our price. Right? It's like getting into Disney World for free. Somebody, somebody else paid your ticket. And you don't have to do anything for it. And so the love of God that provided a way to escape for lost sinners. Right, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He paid for us. But God must also be just and fulfill the law. Right, So he pays the penalty himself. And the best place to see that is Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. And it should be on the slide. I have a slide for that. There should be a slide. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. There we go. I guess I can't really say it that well. All right, so this is Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 26, if you're writing it down, if you can't read it on the screen. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe 
since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. And so God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Right, so that's kind of the wrap-up of how this all works because we have been justified freely by his grace. Through God's grace, we have been justified. So we did not do anything to earn this or do this. We've just, the only thing that Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing we've done to earn this is our sin. That's the only thing we've done to earn God's grace is our sinning. So God did the rest, right? But wrap it up. We have rulers here on earth. We have systems of government, but they change. And so we know this, right? But how important was the throne and the stone of Schoon to the Scots? So legend has it on Christmas Eve, 1950, a group of four Scottish nationalist students reclaimed the stone for Scotland by breaking into Westminster Abbey, and they stole it. So they broke into the, like the main chapel in England, ran up, grabbed the stone, and left. Because they, the newspaper said it reasoned that the stone belonged to Scotland and that by removing the stone of destiny, they were restoring to the people of Scotland the most ancient and honorable part of the Scottish regalia. Right? This, was, this was who ruled Scotland. Whoever sat here ruled Scotland. This is super important. This throne meant everything to them and presumably to these four people, but also to Scotland as a nation. The throne is where the king would sit, right? And we see this earthly stone being moved around back and forth between two countries. But you see, no one can steal God's throne. No matter what happens, nobody is going to storm into heaven and try to take over because Satan already tried it and he failed. And we're going to see that in chapter 12. So whatever happens down here, they are not overthrowing God. They may upset us. They may upset the apple cart of how we think things should be and how we understand life has, was, or is, or maybe turning out. But God has got it all handled because he, it's all part of the plan written on the scrolls. And so it's good for us to try to, to remember that and keep that in our minds. Because God is always on the throne no matter what is happening. He's there. Right? Even when we think down here the world is burning or spinning out of control. And so we may ask, why doesn't he just take control of it with his hands and act now? And that, and that question starts coming up in the next chapter even because they're like, why are we to deal with this? Are the people on earth and everything that's going to happen? Because the question, and maybe people don't like this, but it's because it's in his time. Everything has to set up. We have to be patient and do our part and remember that we serve the king most high. We are his children and his subjects. And we know we need to remember and recall repeatedly that he is just and he is loving to those who believe. All right, so as we sing our last few songs, right, so maybe things that are going on this week or in your life that feel like they're out of control, just remember that God is in control of everything. All right, so let's go ahead and get ready to sing our last couple songs.